Hi everyone, I'm Emma Partridge, and I want to welcome you to a new season of All Right, Now What? A podcast by the Canadian Women's Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for our first three seasons where we explore the pandemic's impact on women and girls. But even when this virus recedes, its impacts will continue to be felt. We still need systemic change to achieve gender equality. So moving forward, every week our experts will put an intersectional feminist lens on one topic we've all been hearing about. The issues and stories that just seem to keep resurfacing and make you wonder, why is this still happening? How is it possible we haven't fixed this yet? We're going to explore the systemic roots of these issues and real strategies for change. The work of the Canadian Women's Foundation and the organizations that we support takes place on traditional First Nations, Métis, and Inuit territories. We are grateful for the opportunity to meet and work on this land. However, we recognize that land acknowledgements are not enough. We need to pursue truth, reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship in an ongoing effort to make right with all our relations. Hi, I'm Andrea. November 20th is the annual Trans Day of Remembrance, a time to remember and honor the lives of trans and gender diverse people who have been murdered due to hate, prejudice, and discrimination. It was first held in 1999 to honor the memory of Rita Hester, whose 1998 murder in Boston, Massachusetts remains unsolved. It is a difficult and painful day, most of all for those who experience transphobic discrimination. In Canada, violence against two-spirit, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people is high. Their experiences of gender-based violence is unique. Statistics Canada shows us that trans people are more likely to have experienced violence since the age of 15 and are more likely to experience inappropriate behaviors in public, online, and at work when compared to cisgender people. Of course, when other factors such as racism, colonialism, and ableism is added to the mix of transphobia, the risk of violence, targeting, and murder go even higher. But when we talk about gender-based violence, we rarely focus on the unique experiences of gender-diverse people and communities, nor have we historically centered their solutions and ideas for change. Faye Johnstone, public speaker, consultant, educator, and community organizer, joins us to shine a spotlight on the issues and the changes that need to happen as we reflect on November 20th. My name is Faye Johnstone. I use she and they pronouns, and I am the executive director of Wisdom to Action. Uh, Wisdom to Action is a 2SLGBTQ-owned and operated consulting firm and social enterprise, and a big chunk of our work uh, pertains to all things uh, combating gender-based violence and supporting 2SLGBTQ communities. Tell us about the gender-based violence that is faced by Two-Spirit, trans and non-binary people in Canada. What is it? What's its scope? And what do we have to consider in addressing it? So gender-based violence, when it impacts trans 2SLGBTQ communities, is, is really quite pervasive and, and touches on all aspects of our identities and our experiences. Uh, when we talk about GBV, we often don't recognize the ways in which violence and gender-based violence in and of itself disproportionately impacts trans, two-spirit, and gender-diverse folks. Uh, so what I mean by that is when we talk about experiences of harassment, uh, intimate partner violence, uh, and, and the broader social components of, you know, worrying about your safety uh, when you go out into public space. Um, those are all things that often disproportionately impact trans and gender diverse folks. For example, we know that 84% of trans folks avoid at least one public space um, because of fears of harassment and discrimination. Uh, what that means is that gender-based violence um, reinforces isolation and disproportionately impacts our communities. 
it, it says a lot if you, um, an entire community, entire group of folks are uh, so concerned about their safety due to past and ever-present experiences of violence uh, that they worry about leaving their homes, leaving their houses, uh, to do something as simple as go to a convenience store or go to get groceries. Uh, when we talk about GBV, uh, we also have to recognize that um, you know, harassment in public space impacts each of us in very different ways. Uh, when I think about my own experiences of harassment, they actually differ fairly significantly as a trans woman from those of cis women. Um, I get a lot of like loathing and shame and disgust from folks in public space uh, versus, you know, what might often, more often be catcalling or other forms of harassment and violence um, that are more likely to target cisgender folks. Um, so when it comes to trans and gender diverse folks, um, gender-based violence tends to impact folks largely based off both their relationship to gender and the degree to which they're gender non-conforming. Um, so what, I, what that looks like is folks who are um, more visibly out of alignment with society's presumptions around what gender should look like. So again, I think about myself, like I'm 5'11", I got a little bit of a deep voice, I got some broad shoulders, and I really love pretty dresses and makeup. Uh, and that results in a fair degree of like uh, un uh, lack of understanding or um, you know social experiences where because of systemic transphobia, because of transmisogyny, um, we perceive folks as as strange, as deviant, or as dangerous, and we therefore um, want to either punish those folks or reinforce the idea that certain ways of being of experiencing gender aren't acceptable. And so we we stigmatize and we ostracize those folks. Uh, in terms of its scope, it really is, is pervasive. We talk about gender-based violence. It is everywhere. It is embedded into our structure. It's built uh, in a world that teaches um, young boys that they will be boys, that they can do what they want to do, that they have space to enact violence and are even you know supported and protected when they do so. Well, we can see then that gender-based violence really is everywhere. And so um, 2SLGQ communities are impacted, you know, at that intersection. Um, so both based along the lines of homophobia and transphobia, which we know are connected to patriarchy, and then also impacted directly by sexism as well. So you can see those two, you know, distinct forms of oppression coming together to result in particularly harmful and negative experiences that then, you know, shape experiences of mental health and well-being. Uh, again, that sense of safety in public space. Um, and all of those other components that, you know, you, you have to live with when your very safety in public space is, is up for debate, is never guaranteed. And it's something that deep down, you know, um, is not guaranteed. You know that every time you leave your space, there is a risk of violence and harassment. It doesn't happen every time. It doesn't happen to everyone in the same, to the same extent. But that sense of knowing it could at any moment has a huge impact on your mental health and your well-being. Uh, and we're starting to, you know, reconcile and, and re recognize that fact. Uh, and so I think we are taking steps to begin to address GBV, GBV uh, most generally. So we've seen, you know, federal investments on gender-based violence. Uh, we've seen, you know, more education, more awareness raising. Uh, but I think we haven't yet wrangled with the particular degree in which gender-based violence impacts trans and gender diverse communities. So a lot of the time we're kind of like, not like entirely left out, but we're a nice little side note or a footnote. So there's a reference to us. Uh, and so one of my challenges would be when it comes to addressing GBV is actually to explore what does 
uh, targeting the experience and, and particularly trying to address gender-based violence when it hits trans and gender diverse communities, what would that look like? And that is what I hope, um, where I hope we're headed in the world of combating GBV to recognize that it's not a homogenous experience, but that we do need those targeted interventions and approaches that respond to different communities and how they're impacted by this kind of violence. I also want to know about the pandemic. How has this impacted the experience of GBV? So I think the pandemic writ large has had a huge impact on trans and gender diverse communities. And that's something I still believe that hasn't been explored in full and that the public writ large isn't particularly aware of. Um, the most poignant examples are one um, that over 10% of trans folks who've gone to COVID-19 testing and vaccination services have had discriminatory experiences. Uh, those experiences are examples of gender-based violence. When a trans person tries to access care and is unable to do so without being dead named or misgendered, without some experience where their gender is turned into a problem, those each and every instance of those uh, are acts of violence and are part of gender-based violence. Um, so that is one piece, right? The inability on a very basic level during a pandemic to ensure inclusive care for a population that has historically um, been denied or had difficult times accessing health and social services. Uh, we've also seen the ways in which uh, I would say in part due to GBV uh, and more generally, you know, transphobia and misogyny, uh, we haven't reconciled or, or, or reckoned with the ways in which COVID has interrupted access to healthcare and medication. So many trans folks um, were unable to get access to medically necessary medication, including hormones. Many folks had um, surgeries delayed because those surgeries were deemed cosmetic. So thing or medical procedures like access to permanent hair removal uh, were deemed cosmetic. Uh, when we think about what's deemed cosmetic versus essential, we can't have that conversation without thinking about how transphobia and transmisogyny and gender-based violence construct certain things as you know, necessary and other things as nice to have. Um, the healthcare that trans folks need is medically essential. And um, if we can't recognize that um, during a pandemic, that will disproportionately impact trans folks' health and well-being. Beyond that, we know that 20 to 40% of homeless young folks are 2SLGBTQ identified. We've got early research out of Toronto that shows how COVID-19 has increased isolation, precarity, and, and poverty in trans and gender diverse communities. Uh, if during a pandemic you're unable to be stable, stably and safely housed, that makes you at higher risk for street harassment and violence in public space. And so, you know, when we think about the pandemic, I think about, um, you know, what happens to that kid who's been learning from home for two years, who doesn't have a safe household, who doesn't have a safe family. Um, who is maybe coming into themselves and isn't able to flee if their situation is unsafe because of stay-at-home orders. And so you can see, you know, when I think about trans folks, I think about that 16-year-old, that 16-year-old who uh, may have, you know, had to stay in the closet or maybe stuck in a scenario where they are experiencing family violence. Uh, and again, the kinds of family violence that trans and gender diverse young folks are more likely to experience hasn't really been part of our COVID conversation. We've talked about intimate partner violence in very important ways, but we haven't recognized the disproportionate impact on those gay, queer and trans kids who are coming into themselves in communities or homes that may not be safe for them while they have very few other options. 
where is that kid supposed to go if they've been stuck at home for two years and their family isn't willing to accept them based off their gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation. Now, you spoke to this a little bit before, but I'd love to dig in a little bit more. What about solutions that will make a difference? I'm mindful of what you're saying around, you know, people being an addendum or a checkbox, but not necessarily community-grounded solutions that will make a difference. Tell us more um, what you're seeing and what you believe will make a difference for the communities you're speaking of, trans to spirit, non-binary, gender diverse people at large. Yeah, so I think there there are you know huge systemic issues that are facing our communities. And I think responding to those issues obligates a system's response. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, you know, when we think about the organizations that serve and support trans and gender diverse individuals, those are largely community-based 2SLGTQ organizations. I think of organizations like Quadrangle in Newfoundland, Labrador, who are trying to become a central hub for 2SLGTQ communities in that province. I think about Kind Space in Ottawa, who've been providing vouchers or gift cards for folks whose incomes and stability have been impacted by COVID. Um, I think about these organizations that are providing, they are the bulwark, they're the stopgap. When the world falls apart for trans and gender diverse folks, when systemic violence gets to be too much and you need to reach out for support, um, or your entire, like your world falls apart. Maybe you lost a job because you came out as trans or you haven't been able to be hired because of employment discrimination. Um, those two SLGQ organizations are the ones who are there in those moments. Um, and they are also ones that have been chronically underfunded. So they have, I, I think of them as the forgotten sibling of our first, like, like the, the nephew of the nephew of the nephew, the one who you never remember to write a Christmas card for. Um, and they are making do off of shoestring budgets uh, without, uh, like, again, after decades of underfunding and without, you know, organizational infrastructure. And so I think one of the best ways to address GBV as it impacts 2SLGBTQ folks writ large is to bolster those organizations. They are the ones doing public education and community outreach. They are the ones who are helping, you know, that 16-year-old trans kid find a couch to crash on or a shelter to stay in or a transitional housing to live within. They are the ones who are doing that work each and every day. Uh, I also think that we need to, you know, broaden how we... Um, respond to street harassment, right? Like bystander intervention training needs to be more readily available. Uh, and I think we need that training to reconcile with um, the ways in which we normalize different kinds of violence. Um, I have been harassed in like the downtown streets of Ottawa and had folks around me ignore that it was happening, even though my safety was very loudly being put into question. And so I think when I when we come when it comes to responding to this violence, uh, we need folks to be trained on how to intervene and how to center the safety of those being harassed in those moments, and to recognize that that harassment looks different when it comes to trans and two SLGBTQ communities. Uh, I, I also think we need to continue the work, and I've seen some really phenomenal examples within the YWCA world, for example, of ensuring that our gender-based services are responding to and inclusive of trans and gender diverse communities. Um, I struggle, and I, I come from a fair degree of privilege, I'm from a middle-class family and I'm hanging out here in my own home, uh, but I can imagine you know, if I was to become homeless, I'd be stuck with a couple in really complicated questions. Would I be safe going to the women's shelter? Um, are the, would I be accepted or welcome in that space? That's still not a guarantee in this world. 
And if I can't go to the women's shelter, then what, well, what are my other options? Do I go to a men's shelter? As a trans woman, as a gender non-conforming person who's got a long history of unpleasant experiences with men, probably not a good option. And so we need to continue that work of ensuring that our social and community responses, uh, our crisis services, our gender-based services are truly uh, supportive and inclusive of 2SLGBTQ communities. Um, and then lastly, I think it's about uplifting communities. It's about creating leadership programs, providing opportunities to trans and gender diverse young folks and adults um, to step into their careers, to be supported uh, in their work environments, to be you know uplifted and, and uh, applauded for the incredible contributions that they make. And our communities are making those contributions in every community, uh, in every region across this country. So I think we can start by supporting them and we can start by supporting the organizations that work with our community specifically. Again, 2SLGQ community organizations are, uh, if there is a silver bullet in addressing health crises and inequities in a particular community, we know it's always going to the organizations in those communities run by and for those communities. And so my hope is that, you know, we can continue to advocate for those organizations for more funding from, you know, provincial and federal governments to support them to develop new programs, to offer more services. I would love to see, you know, 2S LGBTQ housing programs. I would love to see 2S LGBTQ community education programs um, in every community, in every region. And that to me will be when I believe we're actually reconciling with the depth and breadth of violence that trans folks face is when we're responding with the same degree of leadership, of resources and financing to actually tackle this issue. So looking forward to the Trans Day of Remembrance on November 20th, what is the change that you'd like to see going forward from then as a symbolic day that really means so much? So Trans Day of Remembrance is always, uh, it's a hard day for trans communities and I always, I, I want to name that. Um, when you think about it, um, you know, Trans Day of Remembrance is an annual event where trans communities around the world uh, come together in their local communities and mourn the trans folks whose lives have been lost to murder, to violence, and systemic discrimination. Uh, so it is a hard day for everyone. I am always in my feelings that day, um, while also, you know, filled with a bit of hope to see that our communities are coming together uh, and that those whose lives have been lost, they're not forgotten and they are still a part of us and a part of our communities. Um, I, I hope that TDOR is also, um, you know, serves like two purposes. I hope it's a catalyst, one, for us to reflect on, you know, who are the folks most disproportionately impacted by transphobia, trans misogyny, and gender-based violence. Well, it's bluntly, it's not folks like me. I am protected by my whiteness every time I leave the house. Uh, my middle-class background affords me a degree of privilege in these spaces and these moments that uh, is, is quite significant. And so when we look at the statistics on TDOR, we know that it's largely Black, Indigenous, and racialized trans women who are subjected to violence and murder. And so I think to communities and to organizations engaging in trans inclusion work, that is a call to action for us to reflect on who isn't present in our spaces and what are we doing to address the ways in which this violence is in and of itself colonial, racist, anti-Black violence. Uh, and to recognize that we can't talk about trans inclusion and justice without centering uh, those the, the realities of white supremacy and resisting uh, white supremacy in our work. So I think that's one piece um, that I hope we we learn and reflect around during TDOR, especially for white folks and settlers. 
Um, but then in terms of, you know, what I hope the impetus is from TDOR, uh, I hope it galvanizes folks to, to stop that list from growing. Every year is the, the year where we've identified the most murdered trans folks. So the list, the number of folks whose lives are being lost is growing. Um, and our ability to track it is too. So we're becoming more and more aware of the depth of this violence. Uh, and so I hope that folks use TDOR to recognize that, to realize that uh, we need to do more and we need to do better, um, that organizations all need to step up to address injustice and discrimination against trans and gender diverse folks. Uh, but what I hope will change, what I hope, you know, the world I want to live in is, uh, is one in which trans folks and trans women in particular can still be soft. And I mean that in the, in the sense that, um, you know, living in a world where violence is always a possibility, where violence is always, and discrimination, where harassment are always um, things that you know can happen to you um, at any time and in any moment. Uh, it, it forces trans folks to harden themselves. I feel like the longer I've been out, the more like quote unquote resilient I am to experiences of harassment. It hits you differently, uh, but it also doesn't sit with you well. And having to you know, harden yourself to a world of violence has a negative impact on your mental health, has a negative impact on your hope and optimism. And so my hope in, in this world is that, you know, we can fight towards a world where trans folks are able to be soft, uh, where trans folks don't have to be brave or resilient or strong, uh, where trans folks can just be folks and can live in a world where they are afforded that degree of safety, that security, uh, and where those rights, those human rights are, are enacted, not just in our legislator, uh, but where they breathe into every aspect of our lives, where, again, trans folks have access to housing, where trans folks are employed uh, or have access to their basic needs or have those basic needs met, where we can go outside and not worry about our safety, regardless of how we look or what we wear. Uh, the, that is a dream that I, I don't think is coming around anytime soon, but I hope every T-Door that we can recognize in those moments the depths of violence and respond with a real commitment to doing things differently. And again, not tackling, tackling this in a piecemeal approach, but re recognizing that a systemic issue, that systemic oppression obligates a systems response, that we're looking at funding, that we're looking at policies, that we're looking at legislation uh, and moving forward in a way that tangibly, tangibly can address health inequities and discrimination in trans communities. I don't want, you know, symbols and rhetoric. I want tangible leadership, funding commitments and action from all sectors and particularly from all uh, levels of government in this country. November 20th is Trans Day of Remembrance. We can all be mindful to show love and care to those most affected, as well as reflect on our part to end transphobic discrimination of all kinds, in all its intersections. And let's look forward to November 25th, the start of the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. I'd like to encourage you to go to CanadianWomen.org, where you can learn about the Signal for Help and sign up to become a Signal Responder, who is equipped to support survivors of violence in a non-judgmental way. It's a great opportunity to take action in your own life and join a community of people who care about ending and preventing gender-based violence. Thanks for listening. 
Just by downloading and sharing the show, you're supporting gender equality. If you'd like to help Canada get even closer to gender justice, consider donating to support our work at canadianwomen.org. Until next time.